If I were to eat, say, a whole sleeve of these here cookies, what's going to happen to my gut? Anything that you put into your mouth is ultimately going to come into contact with your gut microbes. So our food choices, whatever it is that we choose, ultimately is going to impact our health. Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in Grand Prairie, Texas, Emeryville, California, and Sunshine Coast, Australia. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 86 of season 5, number 385 overall. There is a study that was just released showing once again that ultra-processed foods can lead to an early death. This one out of Brazil showed that 10.5% of all deaths of people between the ages of 30 and 69 can be attributed to eating ultra-processed foods. And what this study found was that not eating these ultra-processed foods like potato chips and cookies and frozen pizzas, taking those out of the diet could save lives. A lot of lives. And my guest today says a lot of the damage that's being done starts right in the gut. Dr. Will Bolsowitz is back with us. He was on the exam room live this week. And also today, because he was making a house call, we opened up the doctor's mailbag, answered questions sent in by the exam roomies. We've got questions on food intolerance and how will you know the foods that you have a sensitivity to? And another one, how can you measure microbiome, fermented foods and acid reflux? Can they help? And healthy snacks. If you're not eating those chips, then what? And the chips are exactly where we will be starting today. What do those chips and things like moon pies and donuts and even a can of soup, what do they do to your gut? Well, let's find out. Dr. Will Bolsowitz, good to see you, man. Chuck, it's great to see you, my friend. Let's talk about this study here uh, before we get into the gut here. Um, again, 10.5% of premature deaths caused by eating things like the potato chips and the cookies, right? Um, the thing is, here's what really alarms me. We talk a lot about the standard American diet. Well, in Brazil, Dr. B, I don't know if you know this, um, for this particular study, 20% of their daily caloric intake was coming from things like cookies and chips and ultra-processed foods. Um, here in America, though, Good old U.S. of A. Estimates show as much as 60% of our calories come from these ultra-processed foods. So you're talking about a number like 10.5% of Brazil, and we're eating three times the amount of ultra-processed foods here in the U.S. What does that say for our health overall, man? Well, I think that this study uh, is a window into our understanding of the effect of ultra-processed foods on our health. Now, this is not the first study to raise concerns about the connections between ultra-processed foods and um, some of our most dangerous diseases. So like the number one cause of death is cancer. We have studies connecting ultra-processed foods. I'm sorry, the number one cause of death is cardiovascular disease. We have studies connecting ultra-processed foods to cardiovascular disease. The number two cause of death is cancer. We have studies for that. Stroke, diabetes, you could go down the line, Alzheimer's. Um, so this is not the first study to go there. But 
it's interesting for us to consider this within the context of our understanding of ultra processed foods, because we're looking at a country, Brazil, that is in the process of transforming. And this has been taking place as they modernize their economy and they become more of a, of a, a, a commercial power. Um, and they've, they've changed their diet as a result of this. We see it, by the way, happening in many countries as the standard of living increases. They start to gravitate towards these types of foods. I mean, frankly, American culture has some negative side effects across the globe as they start to become more like us. In this particular study, Chuck, the consumption of ultra-processed foods was 13 to 21%. That's what they were looking at. So out of their calories, 13 to 21% of their calories were coming from ultra-processed foods. You mentioned this already. In the United States, we're looking at about 60%. We're looking at something north of 50% in all of the major English-speaking countries across the globe. So the UK, Canada, Australia, all heavy consumers of ultra-processed foods, all more than 50% of calories coming from ultra-processed foods. In Brazil, this change is recent. They weren't eating this way when I was a kid in the 80s. They started eating this way recently. And yet we see this dramatic benefit to cutting down on ultra-processed foods, even though it's only 13 to 21% of their calories and a recent addition or change to their diet as opposed to in the States where frankly, being born in the 80, you know, I was born in 1980. Like I was raised on this food, like Kool-Aid was what I drank as a kid. Doritos are what I ate. And so I think that this is just yet another sort of shot across the bow where we need to open our eyes. We need to wake up and we need to acknowledge that it's not just, this is just being true. This is not, it's not just the absence of animal products. That's important from a dietary perspective. That is an improvement in our diet. However, we need to also be conscious of the ultra-processed foods. And I, and I say this uh, for everyone, but that also includes the people who eat vegan and yet eat a very sort of junk food vegan diet. I really want to see people move transition towards a more whole food plant-based diet. Oh, man. You know, I too am a product of the 80s. I, I finally remember Kool-Aid. And I also remember the Kool-Aid's rival, which were, uh, I think it was called Jugs. And they would come in these little plastic barrel looking things. And it was just filled with really food coloring, sugar and and water. And I mean, it was just like the least healthy thing on the face of the <laughs> earth, man. But I mean, that's just what it was back in the day. That's absolutely oh, totally. what it was back in the day. Um, So when you eat something, the first stop is the gut. And what I have learned from having you on the show so many times over the years now is that so much of our overall health really is controlled by what's happening with our gut. So if I were to eat, say, a whole sleeve of these here cookies, what's going to happen to my gut? Break it down for me. Well, I think the important thing for people to understand is that anything that you put into your mouth is ultimately going to come into contact with your gut microbes. And so as a result of that, we, we know from studies, for example, there was a study published in Nature Medicine in the year 2014. The author, his name was Lawrence David. He's at Duke University. In this study, they put people on two very contrasting diets, a completely plant-based diet and a completely animal product-based diet, meaning meat, dairy, and eggs. And they checked their microbiome on a daily basis. One of the major findings from this study was that in just 24 hours, there were already changes to the gut microbiome. So our food choices 
whatever it is that we choose ultimately is going to impact our health. Now, I am not here to advocate for the perfect diet because frankly, I don't believe that that actually exists. I'm here for us to strive towards progress and doing better. I've had Chips Ahoy. I might have some Chips Ahoy today. <laughs> but I think that really what it's about is trying to move our choices towards something that is more predominant or more focused on plants because they come uh, in whole food form with the absence of the colorants, um, the uh, emulsifiers, uh, other food additives, the preservatives. And in addition, when you create these ultra processed foods, you basically are taking something that originates with a food, we call it a food matrix, which basically means the structure of the food, the way that you would consume it if you were to harvest it from your garden. We're taking that and we're, we're changing it. So like what starts as wheat is not the same thing when it emerges as flour. And you break it down into these deconstructed ingredients. And in the process of this, you're actually stripping away the fiber, throwing the best part of the, of the plant into the trash. And what's left over is this ultra simplified form. Again, like the example would be going from wheat into flour, this ultra simplified form that it doesn't behave the exact same way as it did before. It may share some characteristics of what it was, but it has clearly changed and it has changed in a direction that actually is not beneficial to our health. So what starts off as being healthy ends up being at a minimum less healthy. And that's before we start adding in these preservatives and additives and, and um, food colorings and things of this variety. This is unfortunately the creation of ultra processed foods. And when we allow this to dominate our diet and it's 60% of our calories, and yet here we are, and only about 10% of our calories actually come from whole food plants where I hate to say it, but like French fries are the number one within that 10%. <laughs> We're not left with a lot of dietary fiber. And this is, this is why not, you know, 95% of America is inadequate in their fiber consumption. So part of this is the absence of fiber, but part of this is you're taking away the healthy food and you're replacing it with something that's clearly a lesser version. Yeah. And when you were talking about emulsifiers and turning wheat into flour and, you know, long ingredients list. So I'm not sure that the camera can pick that up, but all of that, a long right, list. that is a long list, right? Yeah. So donuts definitely would qualify. But then what about something like these, which are just, you know, crackers and the only ingredients on here are whole wheat and salt. Would that still qualify as an ultra processed food? Well, I mean, it, <sighs> That's a little bit tricky, Chuck. Like, where do, where do we actually draw the line? Um, they actually have this um, food uh, uh, classification system, and it's called the NOVA system. And they will classify foods as NOVA 1, 2, 3, or 4, where 1 is unprocessed, and 4 are the ultra-processed foods. If you take that cracker, all right, here's the beautiful thing of that. You know, one of the ways that we can approach this, I was a chemistry major in college, Chuck. If you take a look at the label and with the ingredients and you don't recognize what's in there, you're like, what is that? <laughs> All right. If it's, if it's something that if no matter what we do, even if you had the recipe, you are incapable of creating this within your own home. This to me are the simple criteria at which I would call this an ultra processed food. Now this cracker without having two ingredients, flour and salt, um, it's potentially possible that we could take that, create a dough, right? With the flour, some water, add in the salt, and then put it into the oven. It's actually possible that we would be able to bake crackers out of that. 
So really what we're talking about is a whole wheat flour. And this is the same thing that would go into a sourdough bread. That's not the same to me. That That is a more healthful form than, say, an ultra-processed food where you, if you chuck, lift up the cookies or the donuts that you had and you start reading off those ingredients, it's not going to take long for us to get to ingredients that people are like, what are you even talking about? What is that? Mm. I don't even know where to get that. Well, let's see. Uh, do you know what maltodextrin, that's a pretty, pretty regular one. Uh, sodium acid phosphate. do you know what that is? Uh, I I. I could break it down by chemical structure, but no, I don't know what that is. I could break it down by chemical structure. That alone uh, this makes is, me love I'm trying to justify my college education. I spent a lot of money on it. Charlie. I mean, come on, man. Uh, Multidextrin, <laughs> modern... <laughs> turmeric. Uh, Look, hey, donuts hey, have turmeric in it. So how bad can they be for you, right? Yeah, oh, there you goodness. go. That's, uh, that's like saying Diet Coke is good. I know. Come on. Uh, we have a question, <laughs> more of a comment here at 1214 from Plant Run 43. What is Chuck going to do with those cookies and chips? Well, the truth of the matter is um, this is all contraband from my father-in-law's stash in the pantry. So they're going to go right back there. All right. So then my question becomes this, right? If we are to replace all of these ultra-processed ultra unhealthy foods with complete whole foods, like you go to that other end of the spectrum. I mean, what then are going to be the lower, you know, rates of things like colon cancer, uh, prostate cancer, things that you probably saw a lot of in your practice? Well, we're clearly going to reduce our risk. I mean, I, I think that the evidence is, is clear when it comes to that. And um, one of the examples that we could use is we could, we could look at my favorite fiber study of all time. I often cite this study. And the part of the reason why I go to it is because it's so comprehensively done. And it is uh, the type of research that anyone can agree on and stand behind. Because essentially, this is from Professor Andrew Reynolds, who's from New Zealand, by the way. They compiled all of the available data on dietary fiber into a systematic review and meta-analysis. This was, by the way, published in The Lancet, which is one of the top medical journals out there in February of 2019. And when they do this systematic review and meta-analysis, the advantage of this is the, the intent is to eliminate bias. So basically, they're going out there and they're saying, we're going to collect all of the available information and we're going to put it into one place. The studies that say the fiber is great, the studies that say the fiber is completely worthless, the studies that say the fiber is actually causing harm to your body. Let's put it all together and let's see how this all shakes out. What does it say? And when they did this, they actually had like literally, Chuck, 100, over 130 million years of information from human beings. Think about that 130 million years of information from human beings in one study. And what they discovered is specifically related to cancer that when people consume more dietary fiber, they reduce their risk of cancer. Now, specific to colon cancer, there was a reduction detectable in colon cancer alone, which is more challenging to find because you have to have enough data to prove it. Um, statistical power. And they did. They not only showed that by consuming dietary fiber, you reduce your risk of developing colon cancer, but they also had a dose response relationship, which really adds to the strength of this uh, discovery. Because basically what they're saying is if you do 10, 15, 20, 25, or 30 grams of fiber per day, as you move up that scale of fiber, you are actually progressively reducing your risk of developing this dangerous disease, which is the number two cause of cancer death in the United States. They also found reduced risk of breast cancer, reduced risk of esophageal cancer. 
I don't know if they specifically looked at prostate cancer, but what we could do is we could dig into the data and look at prostate cancer. And for example, the first thing that I would come to is talking about the risk of developing prostate cancer with the consumption of dairy products and how we could potentially reduce our risk. So when we, when we move towards a more plant predominant diet, it doesn't have to be plant exclusive, but a more whole food plant-based diet, as we move in that direction, we're leveling up. We're leveling up. Yes, we are increasing our dietary fiber, but we're getting so much more than that too. We're getting these foods, their abundant colors, the polyphenols that come with them, the vitamins, the minerals. You mentioned turmeric. Turmeric contains a phyto phytochemical called curcumin. We're getting the phytochemicals too. We get all of these beautiful things that basically nature provided to us to, to heal and nourish our body, to support a healthy microbiome, to reduce our exposure to disease. It's not a perfect thing. I would be lying if I sat here and said that this is the cure-all to all of our problems. That that would not be true. But what it is, is basically you're optimizing your risk. You're reducing your risk. So we, we do have certain risks that exist based upon our genetics, based upon growing up in the United States, based upon prior exposures, based upon our lifestyle. These things are different than just specifically what we eat. But when we eat well, we are helping to basically move our health in the right direction. Right on. All right. So let's go ahead and open up the doctor's mailbag, start answering a lot of your questions. You guys are sending in a ton of them today. So thank you for that. Go ahead and drop yours into the mailbag by posting it in the comment or in the chat. I want to start with a couple of uh, fun little shout outs. Number one, uh, Chris posted this one at 1150. It's been starred here. Kind greetings from the happiest 61 year old girl in Hamburg, Germany. My first birthday as a whole food plant-based eater is coming soon. Thanks to Dr. B. That's pretty cool, man. That's very cool. And I think that that also is um, a testament to the power of what we're doing here at the exam room, Chuck. I mean, I, it just feels really nice to know that there's a person in Germany who's hanging out with us right now. And also like their life has been changed as a result of this. I mean, that, that to me is what it's all about. We also have a question or a comment from Regina at 11.55 says, this is my first live. All right. Thanks for being here. Excited to be here. Just got Dr. B's cookbook. It is packed. Thank you for addressing food intolerances and fear of food. That's been with me for years. Been whole food plant-based for five years. That's another success story right there, my man. Five weeks, she said. Five weeks. My bad. She's joining the party. And, you know, this to me is what it's really about. It, uh, for people who are here who haven't... Um, been with us before. I'm, first of all, I'm glad that you're here. And the message is not, don't like put too much pressure on yourself to be something or defining what you are at the end of the day, what you are at the end of the road. Just take it one day at a time and set very realistic expectations for yourself that you actually can accomplish and then feel good about yourself when you do that. So this to me is the philosophy of progress over perfection, where five weeks, yo, like I literally said this in the book, yo, I am your biggest fan. I am so excited for you. You are doing great, a great job. Right on. Uh, okay, so let's uh, take a question here from uh, Joni. Uh, sent this one in on Instagram a little bit earlier. Quick little change of pace. Wants to know if you can repopulate your gut with new or missing microbes. So uh, Joni specifically was talking about eating a really unhealthy time for a really long time. So uh, what are the odds that you could repopulate down there with some really healthy microbes? Well, there's research, there's research, Chuck, that we have where people increase the diversity within their microbiome. Now, here's what we don't know, and it's the limitation of our testing. And this is, by the way, forgive me, everyone, for being a, a nerd here, but I just want to make sure that I properly, properly <laughs> characterize this. So 
Um, when we run a test looking at the microbiome, there's sort of a lower limit of detection, meaning that like we can only detect at a certain level. And it's possible that the microbes end up sort of being invisible or incognito, where they're still there. They're just below that limit of detection that we have with our laboratory technology. And so they could potentially spring to life if we properly nourish them. Um, so we don't know whether we're actually repopulating the microbiome or just springing to life these sort of dormant incognito microbes. But frankly, at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because whether we are repopulating or we're taking what's already there and we're basically helping them to mature and grow stronger, either way, the end result is that we're ending up with a more diverse, stronger, more resilient gut microbiome. There's a number of ways that we can get there. We know from the American Gut Project that the diversity of plants in your diet is the single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome. So if you haven't heard me say this before, or if you have heard me say this, and you're not yet making this a part of your dietary philosophy, I think that you should. I think that every single meal should be considered an opportunity to just simply add more varieties of plants to your diet. The second thing, Chuck, was there was a study that was done last summer out of Stanford University, some people that I know, professors Christopher Gardner and Justin Sonnenberg. And what they did is they actually uh, implemented fermented food into people's diets. So these are people that basically were not consuming fermented food. And over the course of 10 weeks, they started to add more fermented food into their diet. Not like big bowls of sauerkraut. We're talking about a side dish, like a little couple, couple bites. But basically by doing this over the course of time, they actually increased the diversity within the gut microbiome. And they also noticed that measures of inflammation were on the decline. So to me, here's the beauty. Your gut microbiome, it is adaptable. It can change. The choices that you make can empower it. You can add more diversity. You can restore functionality. And this is sort of the message of hope that exists that I, I believe is really sort of empowering to people who are, you know, hey, what am I supposed to do? I don't know if I can get this better. We can do this. We just need a plan and we can get there. All right. Let's uh, we got to get Jay some help here, Dr. B, because Jay is having a massive snack attack right now. Jay at 1223. I need a potato chip replacement. It is one of the hardest vices for them to give up. So, I mean, this is less of a nerd question and more of a practical advice question. What would you recommend instead of potato chips? Is this a nerd question or? Uh... I mean, you can nerd out. I think it's less of a nerd question and more okay. of just giving practical advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chuck, I want to hear, I'm going to, I'm going to kick this back to you in a second because I want to hear what your thoughts are. Cause I, I'm sure, I mean, look, we're all human. And by the way, let's go to the comments section. Yeah. You guys who are here watching live and drop into the comments what you would do to replace chips. Okay. So I'll give you my answer. Uh, my thought is this, there's, there's a couple things about chips that we enjoy. One is the crunchiness. One is, I think, the fat content, honestly. And one is the salt. Now, do we really need the salt? I think that the answer is no. When we get used to eating a more whole food diet, your desire to consume excessive amounts of salt will diminish as you move on to a more healthy diet. So let's put the salt to the side. Let's talk about crunchy. Let's talk about the fat content. Here's what I would propose. We want crunchy food. How about carrot chips? Mm. We want something that's delicious and has that fat content. How about hummus? Um, or you could do a muhumara. 
Muhammara is conceptually similar to hummus, but it's made with walnuts. By the way, that was a recipe in my first book, Fiber Fueled, and people see, seem to really love that recipe. You make it with uh, walnuts and also red peppers, so it comes out looking kind of red, but it has that creaminess and, that, and it's delicious. Now, for me, like I don't really miss the salt when you give me the garlic. So I'm starting to salivate as I'm talking about this. <laughs> give me the garlic hummus. I want the like sprinkle of the garlic on top. Give me the garlic hummus. Give me some carrot chips. Or I could cut up some other vegetables. Get that crunchiness. The crunchiness, by the way, comes from the fiber. That's how you win. Chuck, what would you do? Give me the garlic hummus. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would. I, I, <laughs> Lay off me. I'm starving. I mean, <laughs> excellent pull. Um, so, yeah, that would actually be my go-to would be carrots and hummus. Love it. Eat them almost every day. I eat the um, rainbow carrots. You know, it's, it's got the yellow in there. It's got the orange, the white, and, of course, yeah. the purple. So a little bit of diversity there. I love that. But I've also been on a roasted broccoli kick, so lightly roasted, so it still has a lot of that crunch to it. And then you can do hummus with that, or you can eat it plain. Uh, either way, it's absolutely delicious. Just throw it in the air fryer for a hot second, and and it comes out, and it's it's oh my gosh, it's so good. Um, so that's that's a really good option. Um, you could do like a toasted pita if you're still looking for um, something quick and and easy, and just get one with the minimal ingredients. Um, and there's your crunch. There you can again go to the hummus uh, or even salsa if that's your gimmick. Um, so if you get a plain pita, and then you just dip that in the salsa as opposed to a fried tortilla chip. Um, odds are you're going to be in better shape there as well. So those are kind Salsa, of uh, guac, dude, we're talking about it. And, and I see a couple of people now in, in the chat, uh, at least one of them mentioned peanuts. So one of the things that I'll do, and, and you got to be careful with these, um, especially with me, just cause I, I mean, you know, there's still a big part of me. That's a big guy inside. So I, I, I try not to overdo it with nuts. But I will um, have some peanuts and then I'll just throw in some raisins and do like a poor man's trail mix. And it is off the charts good. And then sometimes Yo. you sprinkle a couple of peanuts inside of a date. It doesn't even have to be peanut butter. You just put the peanuts inside of that date and you go to town. And let me tell you something. Flavor country. Flavor <laughs> country. So good. It's so good. Sorry, I lost my mind. I blacked out for a second there. Chuck, you got me. <laughs> it's it, man. It's a, it. Look, if you haven't tried it, I'm telling you, do it tonight, and your life may change. Um, absolutely. I, I, I apologize for losing my professional stoicism, and but you got me there. Thank Someone you. Someone mentioned, by the way, Tofu Tuesday mentioned celery and peanut butter, and I think that's a nice touch too. It's got yeah. the crunchiness. It's got the. And um, when I was a kid, we used to eat ants on a log. Going back to the 80s, this was probably the healthiest thing that I ate in the 80s. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> it was, so, you know, celery, peanut butter, and raisins on top. I'm sure most uh, parents are familiar, but just in case. But that's not bad, though, right? Because then you no. get that little bit of a sweet with that crunch, you know? Like, that was, that was a really good snack. Even if, like, right after that, you're diving into the bag of chips. At least you had the ants on the log, right? There's yeah. something to be said with that. Totally. Uh, yeah, man. All right. So let's uh, go ahead and answer some other questions. What do we have here? Can we talk um, about food some more? I want to <laughs> 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 we'll prioritize uh, the food questions. Sorry, Dr. B is losing it over here. Every time, Dr. B, you're on the show, somehow, some way, sauerkraut comes up. So let's take a question from David at 1223. Uh, does heating freshly packaged sauerkraut kill the beneficial probiotics that it contains? Yeah, it does. I mean, it, so the, the same would be uh, true with sourdough bread, for example. So when we, we we have to bake the bread, or we're gonna you know we're gonna cook it at some point, um, 
And when you do that, you are destroying the microbes. But there's a couple of things that are kind of interesting. First of all, through the fermentation process, the microbes have already transformed the food. The food is different. Whether the microbes are there and a part of it or not, the food is now different. They've actually re released um, the, the microbes, much like when they come into contact with fiber in your gut and produce short-chain fatty acids, these microbes that are a part of this ecosystem that is transforming the food, they're releasing bioactive uh, compounds or peptides that can actually have health benefits. And that's part of what you get within the sauerkraut. The, the uh, acidity that you have, those are the acids that are produced by these microbes. There's the suggestion that those are beneficial, much like we find that vinegar is beneficial for metabolic diseases, which of course, vinegar, it comes from fermentation. And then the last thing that I will say, Chuck, uh, I, I don't know how you prove this with fermented food. I don't know that you could because it's nearly impossible to separate the microbes from the food. But Chuck, in the probiotic world, uh, there actually is the idea of treating, they call it tindalizing, where they will treat the microbes in a probiotic and actually heat treat them so that they're no longer alive. And believe it or not, when they do that, the probiotics still seem to work. Hmm. And so it sort of raises the question that like, if you take the sauerkraut and you heat treat it, would you be ruining the nutritional value? And I think that the answer from my perspective is there is still a tremendous amount of nutritional value. And it's, in it's even possible that those probiotics are still active uh, in terms of providing the benefits. That is something interesting because I will sometimes do a really simple dish with the, like a, a whole wheat pasta and I will put kimchi on top of that, but the pasta is hot. So I always wonder what effect that is having on the nutritional um, benefits that may be coming with the kimchi. Am I losing some of them because heat is now touching what had been a raw food up until this point? Yeah. I mean, I would love to see further studies to make it more clear for us whether or not uh, what the effect of that sort of change is. But the reality is that anytime we consume food, no matter what food it is, we're consuming it within a certain context that includes like what the state of the food is. And um, if we cook it, like you're, you're changing the food, you know, for, for example, uh, tomatoes, like how delicious. I'm starting to salivate again. So I'm like, <laughs> we got to talk about food, Chuck. Uh, <laughs> clearly, I will be eating as soon as we're done with this. Um, if you take tomatoes and you, and you cook them, the flavor is different. Am I right? Absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that changes is you actually are increasing the lycopene content. Lycopene is a phytochemical found in tomatoes that actually protects us from, we talked about prostate cancer earlier. Lycopene protects us from prostate cancer, also protects us from heart disease. Cooking the tomato transforms the food. It becomes slightly different. The same would be true with fermented food. So this is just sort of something that's uh, par for the course whenever we're talking about our food. However you eat the food in whatever form you eat the food, it's going to nourish your body in a certain way. And if you were to cook it or transform it in some way, it's going to be a little bit different. Josh K. Can't believe I just caught Dr. B live. This is awesome. All right. Well, Josh, Boom. thanks for hanging Josh. out, man. Uh, this one is not starred, but it has come across uh, my desk here. 1232, Kimberly Alexander. How does erythritol affect gut health? You see that in a lot of items now. Yeah. So first of all, um, people who have digestive health issues, you need to be, before I even answer the question, let me just say that erythritol can actually exacerbate digestive health problems. And what I mean by that is it can cause bloating, gas, diarrhea, things like this. So if you start consuming 
foods that contain erythritol and you notice those symptoms, just be conscious that it's possible that the erythritol is what's causing that. Now, what's interesting about erythritol among the what we describe as non-nutritive sweeteners, which basically means that they don't contain calories, most non-nutritive sweeteners, sweeteners, they don't get easily absorbed and they end up in contact with your gut microbiome and then the gut microbiome undergoes a change as a result of this. What's interesting and unique about erythritol is that it appears to be absorbed by the body. Now, it doesn't contain calories, but it appears to be absorbed by the body before it ever gets to the colon. And as a result of this, um, it doesn't appear to cause changes to the microbiome. So from my perspective, I'm very open to the possibility of erythritol being used as a sweetener uh, in similar fashion. I'm very open to the possibilities of monk fruit or stevia. But what I would say, though, is like moderation is always good no matter what when we're talking about sweeteners. So like when I drink my when I drink my coffee, I learned how to drink it black with no sweetener. And actually, I prefer it that way now. But it did take me some time. Oh, are you a bold coffee guy or do you like the lighter roast? Bold, man. Good bold. man. Oh, absolutely. Good I man. like I like that flavor profile. Go bold or go home, man. Absolutely. Uh, let's take a question from uh, Nalufar at twelve nineteen. I hope I'm getting that name correct. Uh, how can you measure our microbiome, and can it be measured at all? Well, there's a number of different ways that scientists will measure the microbiome, uh, but what where we are is we're actually rather in the early stages of having a complete understanding of the microbiome. It's very complicated. You know, we kind of didn't know anything about it or very little prior to 2006 with the development of a laboratory technology that all of a sudden it's like, whoa, holy cow, we just discovered that a human has, you know, 38 trillion microbes inside their colon. And this could be anywhere from 500 to over a thousand species. And there's, there's estimates that there are 35,000 different species of microbes across the globe. So like my microbiome is different than yours, Chuck, or to anyone else's. If I had, if I had literally an identical twin, we would share less than 40% of the same microbes. That's what the research says. So it's completely unique. It's huge. It's expansive, 38,000. And um, how we actually tap into, like, what does this information mean? We're, we're working on that. That's what we're trying to understand. But one of the ways that we measure this is with diversity. We look at how many different species exist. And the reason why, this is our sort of simple early stages approach. I think we'll refine this and do better in the future. But the reason why is because if you look at ecosystems, like, forget the microbiome for a second. Let's talk about the Amazon rainforest. Let's talk about the Great Barrier Reef. If you look at these ecosystems, the measure of health within that ecosystem is the diversity of species because the diversity, they basically like interact with one another. They create balance, they create harmony and they make it resilient. They make it tough. When you lose diversity, it's less resilient. It's less, less tough and it's more fragile. And so with humans, the microbiome is an ecosystem. When it becomes less diverse, that is when we actually see the manifestation of disease. It could be metabolic disease. It could be immune-mediated chronic diseases. There's a number of different things that can happen. But the point is that we seem to see this consistent pattern where more diversity seems to be more healthful. Less diversity is problematic. All right. Uh, quick thumbs up, thumbs down from Muhammad, wondering whether plain homemade popcorn is a healthy snack in your estimation. I'll go like this. Thumbs up. I would get organic. I would get organic, but I think that this is a whole grain and we're not getting enough whole grains in our diet. 
There you go. Uh, Narelle, uh, first time watching live from Sydney, Australia. That's a point of advantage of randomly waking up at 4 a.m. Yeah, it's the middle of the night there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's impressive. Uh, says that uh, they love both of your books and enjoy the exam room. So, yeah, cool. Thanks for being here at 4 a.m. That's I mean, that's dedication, my True friend. dedication. That is. Yeah. Uh, let's grab a couple of more. B, 1234. Are fermented foods good for acid reflux? Well, you want to be careful with some of the fermented foods because they're acidic and the microbes are creating that acidity. So like, you know, vinegar would be an example where for some people they will consume vinegar and they will find that it actually exacerbates their reflux. And the reason why is because creating more acidity is it's just coming into contact that you're still having the same amount of acid reflux, but it's coming into contact with your esophagus. And your esophagus is vulnerable because you've been dealing with this chronic health condition. So the acidity of food is something that we need to be conscious of. Now, I will say, like, there are people who will do, for example, apple cider vinegar. And they'll start taking, like, for example, a shot of it. And they report that there's improvement of their acid reflux. And to me, that may be related back to the microbiome. So generally speaking, I think that fermented foods, generally speaking, Fermented foods can be included in a healthful dietary pattern for people who have acid reflux. What I would say as a gastroenterologist, if you were my patient, I would be sitting across from you and I would say to you, we have to let your symptoms guide us. So at the end of the day, we don't try to shoehorn things. We don't try to force things that don't feel right. But instead, what we do is we try something and we wait for the feedback that our body is going to give us. If this makes your reflux symptoms worse then we know that your body is not ready to handle what you just did. And then we just adjust. Dark Lord Dale at 12.06. And I can just assure you the fact that Dark Lord Dale is with us today means that Dale actually has a bright and sunny personality, despite the name. 12.06, uh, we've been talking a lot about cooked food today, but uh, they are wondering whether freezing food can have the same effect on live enzymes. Gosh, that is an interesting question. Um, I, I believe, I believe Chuck, that So I, I don't know with complete clarity. It's not something that I've looked into, but this is the way that I would answer it. I believe that when you freeze the food, the microbes are still there. They're less active, but you're not necessarily killing and destroying them. And the reason why we say this is that you could freeze the food. And for example, with regard to histamine content, histamine uh, is something produced by microbes um, once you harvest your food, basically the clock starts and these microbes start producing histamine. So it's sort of a measure of food spoilage in a way, because the longer that you have from harvest to when you consume it, the higher the histamine content will be. You can slow the histamine production down by freezing it, but you don't halt the histamine production. So the point is that these microbes, they're still working. They're still present. They're just working slower. Question from Frank, uh, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to answer this one. He he wanted to know this for me. Uh, Frank said, well, when you made up your mind to go vegan, did you wean yourself off of meat slowly or did you go full on? How long did it take you to feel at ease with the vegan diet? Um, I am an all in, like, let's just cannonball into the deep end kind of a guy. So when I made up my mind to go, uh, it was overnight and I've not had a bite of meat or a drop of dairy since. Um, that's the way that it is for me. In my personal exp uh, experience, yeah, I, I think that just ripping the Band-Aid off is the way to go. But we're not all cut from the same cloth. If you can get to the same destination by taking a different route, take the different route. 
Whatever yeah. route is easiest for you is the one to go with, but you have to be honest with yourself. If you find that you're weaning yourself off and then when you do have that little bit, suddenly you have a little bit more the next day and the day after that and the day after that, and then you realize what's going on, you probably want to readjust your strategy at that point. So just be honest, figure out what's going to work for you and, and just have that good, hard, long look in the mirror. I mean, are, are you an... When you did this initially, were you an all-in guy, Dr. B, or did you kind of gradually wean yourself into? No, it's a gradual process for yeah. me. Yeah, okay. because and you know, part of it for me, I think that there are many avenues or roads that lead to these dietary choices. And for some people, it's a motivation that comes from uh, selflessness, like for example, um, ethical concerns for the animals or concerns for the environment. And I, I find that like many times those specific things lead people to move more quickly, you know, potentially cannonball into the deep end. Um, for me, it was health related. So, and this was like a trial and error thing. Like, is this going to work? Do I want to do this? And it was the discovery over the course of time that progressively reducing my animal product consumption and progressively reducing my ultra processed food consumption and my fast food consumption and replacing it with whole food plant-based choices. Over time, this really uh, transformed my body. We were, Chuck, we were talking before we came on the air. Today is my wedding anniversary with my wife. And we woke up this morning. We have a tradition in our family. We watch our wedding video every single year at our anniversary as a family. And so we did that this morning. And I watched this video and I'm like, that's interesting. I was 33 years old. I'm 42 now. And I feel like I look younger at 42 than I did at 33. And that's because for me, where I was in my transition was that I was moving towards more plants, but I was still eating chicken, tons of, tons of dairy, tons of eggs when my wife and I got married. And um, so it was a process of many years for me. Yeah. Well, happy anniversary, my friend, nine years. I mean, that's, that's nothing to shake a stick at my friend. And you do, you, you still got that baby face, man. I think the same thing when I look at my old photos, I mean, even photos from 13 years ago before I lost the weight, I, I honestly think that I look younger today than I did then. So I think that it is a testament to, you know, how much a, a clean lifestyle and healthy eating, what that can do for you. I find it hard to look at my old pictures. I don't know if you feel that do way, you? but I find it hard. To, yeah, I do. I, so, I, I don't like the way that I look. Okay. To be honest with you. So here's the thing, right? I, it was hard for me for a long time as well, but then it just kind of dawned on me that when people say everything you did before brought you to where you are now, I really like where I'm at now. And if I go back and I changed one thing, then I may not be here. I really like where I am. So I embrace that old part of me wholeheartedly now. And it's, I appreciate the fact that I was there because it gives me better perspective for where I am today. Is that something that you ever think about? Well, I do think about there's these moments that I, I feel like this is, uh, I don't know, something that has happened to me through the more recent years where you start to reflect on your life and there's these moments where something happened and you think about like, what if that didn't happen? So like a quick example, like I'm, we're celebrating our nine year anniversary with my wife and I met my wife on eHarmony <laughs> and I had paid for a year like I was like, it was like January 1st of, I don't know, 2012 or 11. And I paid for a year and uh, it was like getting to the end of the year. It was like December 15th when I got introduced to my wife through this program. And I, it was like literally one of the last times that I would ever log into this 
into this program because I wasn't planning to renew after a year. And so like it's serendipity. Like I, I log in, I meet my wife. I didn't know she would be my wife. I didn't know it would transform my life, transform my diet, turn me into an author. All these things that have happened, they're all the result of this moment. What if that didn't happen? That's like, to me, quite terrifying. <laughs> well, you know, I once uh, went on a date uh, from uh, an online dating service. Uh, it led me to my wife, but my wife was not the woman who uh, was on that date. The woman uh, on that date, I thought that it was going really well until she started talking about we were surrounded by aliens in the Starbucks where we were sitting. And then it just went off the rails. I can't make this up. That is a 1000% true story. And then the next date that I went on was with my wife and the rest is history as well. So, Hey, Chuck. Can I point out a quick comment that I just want to comment on? Because I actually oh, am really yeah. grateful that this person yeah. Uh, yeah. mentioned this. So Cody Banks 1249 says, it's so interesting because I've seen both vegans and carnivore only eaters having these same health benefits. The only common thing between the two I found is no more sugar or processed foods. I actually think this is mm -hmm. a very insightful comment. And I'm grateful that Cody brought this up, um, even though this is a we're kind of coming from a plant based perspective. Because it allows me to kind of address this issue, which is that I actually do think that there's benefit to eliminating ultra processed foods on a carnivore diet. Like I understand that there are some people who make health claims. We don't have even one study. There's not even one study on a carnivore diet um, to demonstrate health benefits. But there are definitely anecdotal uh, experiences that people have and they share them. And I'm not here to dismiss those people and tell them that they're wrong. But really the, the issue, so I, I do think that the the, the best part of a carnivore diet is that it helps you to eliminate ultra processed foods. Like that to me is uh, the value that exists and trying to find something positive to say about it. The, the problem with it is that you're sort of mortgaging in the long term. Um, you're making a compromise that you don't need to because the compromise is that you are going to drive your clear like surely. I mean, trust me, go ahead and check your cholesterol levels with your doctor your LDL cholesterol is going to go through the roof. It's going to be absurdly high. And it's very clearly associated LDL cholesterol with the development of cardiovascular disease, the number one cause of death. Um, LDL cholesterol is a risk factor for death, early demise. And we also know that meat consumption is associated with uh, several forms of cancer. So uh, effectively what we're doing when we move towards a diet that's exclusively animal product based, we're inc increasing our risk of the most dangerous diseases that exist. Those things don't show up in six months. In the, in the majority of cases, there are some people who are already sort of on that path. They change towards a carnivore diet. Their LDL cholesterol goes to more than 200 and they have a heart attack and it happens within a year. That does exist. But more so for a person who makes this choice, you're making a choice where you have to make a compromise on your long-term health. And we don't know what the effect is going to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years. We don't even have data on one year. I would love to see it, but we don't have any data. And so the, the point from my perspective is why, why make that choice when you have the alternative choice, which is a whole food plant-based diet that does not require that compromise, that actually is demonstrated to reduce our risk of these same diseases, heart disease, cancer, stroke, diabetes. That to me is why you make that choice. But it, in both cases, I do believe that there's benefit and I want to validate that. I want to say it in earnest that there is benefit to reducing ultra processed food consumption. Yeah. Let me ask you this, right? So clearly, you know, we, we know about the risk with ultra processed foods. That's been kind of the focus of the show here today. Uh, plenty of times throughout the years, we've been talking about some of the ill effects that come with uh, eating a really meat heavy diet. You were just talking about some of them. So my question is then if you take beef and you make jerky and you take pork and you turn that into sausage, 
are you just really merging two things together, the ultra processed foods and the meat? And that is like a really dangerous recipe when it comes to your health. Like, are those really ultra processed meats the worst of the worst? Yes, they are. I mean, I could do worse. The worst would be probably Crisco, <laughs> which is literally just trans fat. But no, that is the ultra processed meats are, uh, from my perspective, about the worst of the worst. And it doesn't matter whether it was, you know, grass fed or something like that, or they contain nitrates that have been associated with cancer. They contain preservatives, which disrupt and disturb the microbiome. And it's not a coincidence that the World Health Organization has labeled them as a clear carcinogen. Final question here today. And I know that this is something you've been talking about a lot recently. This one comes to us from Lassie. Been sitting on this, came in at 12.08. Uh, Dr. Will, what is the easiest way to figure out what food intolerances I may have? I'm from Denmark. And for some reason, my doctor said they don't make those types of tests anymore. I don't know what to do. Yeah, Lassie, thank you. Um, so the answer to this question is ultimately through self-experimentation, potentially working with a dietitian, um, where we need to use basically dietary patterns and shifts in our dietary patterns that allow us to see trends that we can then use as um, rock solid information. The problem with testing, the breath tests, blood tests, antibody tests, poop tests, there's all these different tests, but where is the evidence to prove that the tests are valid? and that they work. And the answer is that to this day, I have not seen that evidence. When it comes, I will be ready to talk about it. Um, so instead, what we want is things are is information that's rock solid, that we can lean into, that we can trust. Rock solid information means temporary, emphasis on temporary, temporary restriction, seeing how we feel when we do that. So if you take the food that you're concerned about, it could be dairy or it could be, um, uh, could be dairy, could be animal products, could be beans, uh, whatever it may be. You take that food, you temporarily remove it. You see if your symptoms improve. Then you bring it back in. Do your symptoms get worse? If this pattern of shifting the currents causes a shift in your symptoms that coincides with it, then you are creating uh, an understanding and you are now um, empowering yourself towards addressing that specific issue because the beauty of uh, identifying the specific food intolerance is that the vast majority of food intolerances can be overcome. You can consume that food. The food that you think is your enemy can actually be your friend and you can enjoy it in abundance if you properly train your gut. And so this is uh, really, someone mentioned earlier the cookbook. Um, so this is really what the Fiber Fields cookbook is all about. And this is also, Chuck, I actually just had a series of courses, three courses that I did over the course of four weeks. The first was on diagnosing food intolerances. The second was on overcoming FODMAP intolerance. FODMAP includes dairy, includes gluten-containing foods. And the third was on overcoming histamine intolerance, which is like classically fermented foods, things like that. And so these three courses basically are uh, where I really took a deep dive going far beyond my books. So the Fiber Fields Cookbook can be a great place to start. But if you're interested in learning and going beyond that, come to my website, theplantfedgut.com, and um, you'll find these courses. Message me if you have trouble, and um, it may be worth checking out. Yeah, they're, they're still available on demand, right, if I'm not mistaken? 
Yeah, they're available on demand. Uh, I have I have the, those courses. I'm, I'm sort of building out a catalog of courses. I also have courses on constipation, acid reflux, and then I have my Cadillac course, sort of my premier course, which is called the Plant Fed Gut Masterclass, and that's more of a big deep dive seven weeks. So um, all of those are uh, either available by demand now or will be very soon in the future. And if you're interested, just reach out. Absolutely. And there's a link to the plantfedgut.com right now in the show description or in the episode notes for you. So go ahead and give that a click. Raise your health, raise your health IQ, or as you say, take a next level. Uh, but Dr. B, man, we are in overtime, so we got to wrap this thing up. But you have been so generous with your time, especially on your anniversary, man. Happiest of anniversaries, my friend. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Thank you for the active chat. It's always a privilege uh, to see you guys, people in Germany, people in Australia, and across the globe hanging out with us. Thank you so much. I always get so excited when Dr. Bolsowitz is here, like legitimately pumped up. And also, I was really, really, really happy that so many exam roomies this week were able to join us live for the first time, including in Australia and in Germany. So cool to have that sort of global reach. And by the way, Australia and Germany are two of our biggest countries in terms of reach. So really want to say thank you to everyone there who is taking a little bit of time and raising their health IQs with us. Really appreciate it more than you will ever know. And I'll tell you what, I am also so fired up by all of the health successes that we heard on the show today. I mean, the chat in the live show was flooded with stories of youthful complexions coming back and longtime illnesses vanishing and then managing high blood pressure, managing cholesterol, just getting their lives and their confidence back. That is what I love about this show. You get your health under control and suddenly anything becomes possible. If you've been through that, you know it is literally the greatest feeling in the world. And if you feel like you could use a little bit of one-on-one -on -one help with your health, how about this? The Barnard Medical Center is powering this episode of the Exam Room Podcast. Their doctors and dietitians practice lifestyle medicine and promote plant-based nutrition with in-person visits in their Washington, D.C. office and telemedicine appointments in 18 states. Visit barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500 to learn more. That's barnardmedical.org or call 202-527-7500. If you're already making changes to your health and you're ready to make some changes in your life, well, how about coming to work with me at the Physicians Committee? It would be awesome to have you on staff. Right now, we are looking for a print and digital designer. So that's someone who would be tasked with creating some of our wonderful graphics on our website, on social media, helping out with our newsletters, and then even taking the lead in designing our magazine. So it's a really fun and creative way to get our message out. And if you have those creative chops, you've got a background in graphic design, we would love to hear from you. There's a link to apply right now in the episode notes, or you can log on to pcrm.org careers to see all of our current opportunities. 
And don't forget to set a reminder, mark your calendars, and join us for the next live show that's coming up on Wednesday, November 16th. We start at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Go ahead, join us on YouTube and on Facebook. We'd love to bring you into that exam roomy live community. So ask your questions right then and right there. But for today, my friends, that is going to wrap things up. I want to say thank you one more time to Dr. B for being here and helping to raise our health IQs. And be sure to check out his course at theplantfedgut.com. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for listening. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>